Hey there! If you like true crime stories and you love being in the great outdoors, you have come to the right place. I'm Tara, your host. Welcome to Crime Off the Grid. Hey, welcome everybody to the Crime Off the Grid podcast. And I am super excited to be talking with my friend, Nancy Martins, today. Nancy started her park ranger career in 1991 in Yellowstone National Park, which is, of course, where I know her as a law enforcement ranger. And she worked in Yellowstone for 19 years. She then moved to South Dakota to be a supervisory park ranger at Mount Rushmore National Monument. And after three years there, she was hired as a patrol captain for the U.S. Forest Service in Region 2, stationed in the Black Hills National Forest. She worked for the National Forest for almost eight years before coming back to the Park Service, you know, as the chief ranger of Jewel Cave National Monument for four years before retiring. And during her time in Yellowstone and while living in Custer, South Dakota, Nancy was also a contract guard for the U.S. Marshal Service for 25 years. Well, and I didn't realize you were moonlighting with the U.S. Marshal Service when you were in Yellowstone, Nancy. <laughs> um, but, yes, oh, ma'am, I did that. Yeah, well, also, by the way, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad. Thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I think folks have an idea of what a law enforcement ranger does, but can you explain a little bit what working for the U.S. Marshal Service, uh, moonlighting uh, and contracting with them entailed? Well, Basically, it entailed me going to, in Yellowstone, it was more difficult because it was a lot of transferring of prisoners to federally approved facilities. So that was a lot of windshield time transporting um, prisoners, especially in the wintertime. You had to go around the park. Uh, you could not go through the park. Right. When I was in South Dakota, I would um, pretty much babysit prisoners that were in the hospital I would do prisoner transports where you would meet um, you would meet a bus from Sioux Falls. You would meet it halfway, and then you would pick up the prisoners or exchange prisoners that you have with you to go on the bus, and then you take others, and they come back to court. And, um, and I also was in court periodically during trials um, as one of the guards. Wow. Yeah, see uh- – People don't realize if somebody's got to transport these prisoners and get them to court and and make them act right, like I know Nancy did probably the whole time you had. I, I wouldn't worry about a prisoner escaping or anything if uh, if uh, I had you transporting a prisoner. Well, well, I appreciate that, and and it was good for them because they, you know, there's not a lot of marshals, so the guards came in handy yeah. to work with the marshals. Yeah. So okay, was, well, yeah. I I need to share this. Um, I was in Yellowstone the whole time Nancy was, but we we were always in different districts. But Nancy became my, um, what do you call it? Not, not mentor, but, uh, well, let's just say I admired her work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would hear about incidents that you were involved in, Nancy, where you clearly took care of business, I guess you could say, uh, when it came to law enforcement. And then when I would find myself in a stressful or dangerous, somewhat dangerous law enforcement situation, I would just silently say to myself, WWND, WWND, <laughs> which stands, which stands for what would, 
Nancy do. <laughs> yeah. No, you could write that on my on the top of my hand. WWND. I think I might have showed that to you one time. Like, what would Nancy do? Because oh, Nancy, but I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. Nancy is a bad ass. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> she can bench press a house. Don't get in her way. Uh, but oh, all cute. right, okay. Well, anything else to add to your bio there? Did I for, did I leave out anything? No, but one one interesting note on that is <laughs> I had an employee mention to me that they had never seen a federal employee take three different positions and never have to move. <laughs> That's true. Well, yeah, all staying in so Chester, we, South Dakota. Yeah, that's right. So we stayed three different positions. We stayed in the same house. So it was pretty oh, awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, that just also says where you live is an amaz- amazing, beautiful place with national forests and national parks all around. Yes. Yes, ma'am. It is. Wow. Well, um, the case we're discussing today uh, begins on March 8th, 2009 at approximately 5.50 in the morning at Fort Eustis. And Fort Eustis is a United States Army installation in Newport News, Virginia. In 2010, it was combined with the nearby Langley Air Force Base to form Joint Base Langley-Eustis. Anyway, Fort Eustis emergency medical services personnel responded to a call in reference to a stabbing in a housing building, building 696 at Fort Eustis. And when they got there, they found Army Specialist Mitchell Stone in what's called the staff duty area of the building. And he had been stabbed multiple times in the throat and in the thigh. And Stone, fortunately, was conscious and told the responders that he had been assaulted with a stun gun and stabbed. And he was able to identify the person who did this to him as Army Specialist Christopher Neal Lanham, who was his roommate, actually. And it happened right after Lanham's girlfriend, Patsy Ann Marie Montowski, had walked through, passed through Stone's bedroom to get to the common area of their suite. Stone was transported via Nightingale airlift to Sintera Norfolk General Hospital with serious injuries. And then the officers with Fort Eustis Military Police arrived about 6 a.m. at the building and in rooms 258 and 259, which belonged to Stone and Lanham, respectively. Neither Lanham nor his girlfriend were anywhere in the suite or the building. The rooms are like private individual rooms that share a kitchen and common area and bathroom in the middle. So uh, you would access your area by walking through your bedroom side and then that's how you would get to the kitchen or common area. So separate entrances to the suite. Officers observed what appeared to be blood in room 258, which was Stone's room, and also saw blood in the common area in the kitchen. Specifically, there appeared to be blood splatter on the walls, the floors, and the furniture. There was a knife and a gun on the floor of the common area and kitchen and a stun gun, which was covered in blood, on the floor of Stone's room. The officers also found in room 259, Lanham's room, a woman's purse hanging from the bedpost, which the driver's license in the wallet belonged to Lanham's girlfriend, Patsy and Marie Matowski. Now, special agents with Army CID arrived 
and they did their thing, you know, very thoroughly at the crime scene. The agents determined that the gun found on the floor next to the knife was a 45 caliber Smith and Wesson pistol. And there was a magazine in the pistol. Yeah. And it appeared to be loaded. And there were two more knives on the kitchen counter that appeared to be clean. But I didn't get this is coming from the affidavit uh, to federal court, but I didn't get that if those were just normal kitchen knives uh, on the counter or that belonged to the kitchen or what they were or something else. Well, in Lanham's room, there was a computer in a hutch and the internet was up and running and it appeared someone was searching for information about sleeping gas. So they were searching sleeping gas. I thought that was interesting. I did too. To read that. Yeah. So of course, I had to look up sleeping gas. Uh, of course you did. I did because I'm like, I'm thinking, what, you know, what is it when people put the thing over your face, you know, in the movies and knocks you out? Like they put a cloth and they dump water. What is it they dump on the cloth? Oh, eat. <laughs> what, what is it that they put on the, I don't you know what no, they put think, on the cloth. But anyway, that's what I was thinking is, is that what they're talking about? Or, uh, you know, nitrous oxide? Is that the dentist thing? Uh, anyway, which doesn't work on me, by the way. Um, so, but anyway, I just, everybody's my witness here. I look up weird things on my computer. And so if the cops ever come in here and look at my search history, y'all are my witnesses that I have purpose for looking up sleeping gas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, Wikipedia said sleeping gas is an onergenic general anesthesia that is used to put subjects into a state in which they are not conscious of what is happening around them. And most sleeping gases have an undesirable side effect, duh. Um, but they also found in the room a baggie on the hutch below the computer monitor, which contained a residue of a green leafy substance and a small piece of screen. You can tell law enforcement's writing this. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. According to my training and experience, a leafy green substance in, uh, in a small piece of screen. Anyway, located on the dresser in Lanham's room were several empty knife sheaths and an envelope with the green leafy substance on it and a glass pipe and what appeared to be burnt substance packed in it. I wish I would have remembered that when I was writing my PC statements. <laughs> that was a good one about the glass pipe. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what appears to be a burnt substance packed in it. <laughs> Next to the pipe was a lighter with a marijuana leaf symbol on it. Now there's your clue. Okay. There's your there's clue. Your That's clue. right. Yeah, you don't need to to do any testing of the leafy green substance because it says it says what it is right there on the it's, lighter. There's the advertise the advertisement <laughs> that you need. Right. Well, okay, now that now it gets weird. There were masks and pictures and paintings of the Joker from the recent Batman movie on the walls of Lanham's room. Which one which Joker movie was that? Um, it, it was the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. The, yeah. the, the Dark Knight. Yes. Yeah, so those images of the Joker were all over Lanham's room. And then they found face paint on the hutch and the dresser. And there was also an empty box of shotgun shells in the room and an empty box for a shotgun. So I don't know if this is a brand new shotgun. I, but I didn't know if that meant a case for a shotgun or, or you just bought it and it was from a box. The, yeah, I didn't know that either. I kind of thought the same thing that yeah. maybe it was a new a new shotgun. Brand new shotgun, maybe. The area yeah. between the kitchen and common area and Stone's room was in disarray, and it appeared that a violent struggle had taken place. Agents conducted a search of Lanham's vehicle, 
which was still out there located in the parking lot around the barracks and found a letter. And at the top of the letter, it stated, quote, to our families and friends. And then the letter appeared to leave messages for Lanham's and Montalski's children and their parents, which the fact that they have children is interesting to me, but (laughs) not everybody should procreate. I'm just saying. Law enforcement agents issued a BOLO, which is be on the lookout, alert for both Lanham and Montowski to other law enforcement authorities around the state and stating that they were wanted for an attempted murder and that they were armed and dangerous. And they later issued another BOLO for a 1999 blue Ford Windstar that it appeared that Montowski was possibly driving. Yes, correct. That's what I read. So now... At approximately 11 o'clock a.m., a United States park ranger was checking out pullouts on Skyline Drive in Shenandoah National Park. And Shenandoah National Park extends along the Blue Ridge Mountains in the state of Virginia. The Skyline Drive runs the length of the park, and a vast network of trails include a section of the long-distance Appalachian Trail. So if you're going to through-hike the Appalachian Trail, you're going through Shenandoah. It's mostly forested, and the park features wetlands, waterfalls, rocky peaks, like Hawksbill and Old Rag Mountains, which I thought were interesting names because, for example, Yellowstone, all the mountains are named after white men. (laughs) You know, they are. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) Shenandoah is home to many bird species, plus deer, squirrels, and the elusive black bear, and was established in 1935. So, some information about Shenandoah. And one other thing is uh, Shenandoah, and where it's situated on the East Coast area, it's kind of a magnet place for people in that part of the country to actually get into wilderness and they also tend to have a few suicides there. It's And it's only 75 miles from D.C., so it's a remote, beautiful place with close access to a lot of population. I was going to say it's got to be beautiful because that seems to attract people that uh, that want to take their life. That seems to be beautiful yeah, places is right. where they go. That's true for some reason. Well, the ranger was looking for a wallet that was reported as lost. And so that's why he was going in and out of a lot of the pullouts on Skyline Drive. And yes, that's one of the many things a ranger might do to help a visitor. <laughs> so <laughs> as he was driving slowly, checking the ground and the pullouts for that wallet, he spotted the suspect vehicle, that blue Ford Windstar, at a place called Goonie Manor Overlook. The ranger's attention was drawn to the vehicle and to the two individuals who were actually standing outside of the vehicle when he saw them, and they were later determined to be Lanham and Montowski, because according to the affidavit, they were both wearing head coverings of some sort. It didn't describe the head coverings. Uh, only that's what that's what I was mm-hmm. wondering. Yeah, what, uh, what the head coverings uh, was. Right, uh, if it was all the way over their head, or if it was just covering their hair, yeah, or, or covering their face, kind of weird, or what? But yeah. Right, But what really got the ranger's attention was one of them just had this look um, he had described. And this guy was staring at the ranger with these big eyes appearing startled. Anyway, the ranger just kind of got spooked by that and his spidey sense went up. So he turned his vehicle around to get a better look at Lanham and Montowski. And they had gotten into... That's a, that's, a, that's a JDLR. That is a JDLR. Exactly. Just doesn't look right. Yeah. Well, I say just don't look right. I use a bad grammar when I say that. But um, yeah, exactly. JDLR. So 
They'd gotten into the vehicle by the time the ranger turned around and took off driving southbound. And when the ranger ran the license plate through dispatch, he discovered the bolo out for the vehicle. So the NPS dispatcher called the Army Military Police at Fort Eustis to get more information regarding the bolo and confirm it, So, which they did. And the ranger basically, at that point, maintained surveillance of the vehicle and requested backup. And that would have included Virginia State Police, Page County Sheriff's Office, and other rangers that were heading his way for backup. So this ranger was smart enough not to engage these folks alone. Yeah, absolutely. He uh, he kind of hung back and, and waited waited for the cavalry to show up, basically. Right. Well, so the ranger observed Lanham driving the vehicle southbound. And by the way, Lanham and Montowski had entered the park from the north. While following the vehicle, Lanham, who was driving, pulled the vehicle across both lanes of traffic and blocked the roadway. So the ranger backed up, turned around, and pulled into an overlook because he didn't want to confront Lanham without the other law enforcement assistance. At this point, smart. absolutely. Yeah. At this point, the park ranger could no longer see the blue Ford Windstar. So he kind of waits a little bit. And how it was described to me by uh, a ranger who was also involved in the park at this time said that it was basically this cat and mouse game. Like the ranger was wanting to maintain uh, uh, eyesight of their vehicle, but stay back. Uh, for his own safety. Stay at a safe, yeah, safe, safe distance. Yeah, stay at yeah. a safe distance. Yeah. yeah. So he would wait a few minutes and then Lanham didn't ever drive by. So the park ranger thought, well, he must have continued southbound. So then the ranger starts driving southbound, uh, like a slow follow. Maybe you'd catch up to him at some other point. But then the ranger and Lanham actually passed each other traveling in opposite directions. So what had happened was Lanham turned around and headed back north on Skyline Drive. And so the ranger did that as well, following Lanham. Montowski's, the female, was seated in the passenger side of the vehicle. At some point in this pursuit, uh, other rangers joined. So there, I think there were two other park rangers. There was the Virginia State Police and the Page County Sheriff's Office, all you know, following the suspect vehicle. And at some point, they activated their emergency lights in an attempt to stop the vehicle, but Lanham didn't stop. And so he essentially took the officers on a sort of slow speed pursuit. Yeah, drive. 35 yeah. to 55 miles an hour. Yeah, that is a slow, slow pursuit for sure. It is, except that the normal speed limit on Skyline Drive is 35 miles an hour. But there are, as you would expect, there would were tons of curves. And so I think 55 miles an hour going uh, around a curvy area might actually seem pretty fast and very unsafe. Anyway. That's true. Yeah. That's true. A lot of the parks are scenic like that. Yeah. Well, nearly an hour after the suspects were initially seen, they're getting closer to the north entrance of the park. And literally, the cavalry was set up and ready. Rangers at the entrance had cleared the area from the public or employees, and they got the spike strips out, and they were set up to stop Lanham. So, you know, there's a lot to consider here. You know, why didn't they just stop them sooner? Well, number one, they they didn't stop when they activated their lights and siren. But law enforcement is concerned about a lot of things in these situations. And they, they have to consider the safety of other visitors and other motorists. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, absolutely they do. And then their own safety when they're planning on how they're going to execute this stop. But the bad guys don't care who they endanger. That's, yeah, that's so true. 
by the way, there were multiple agencies responding to this call and they didn't have communications between them. For example, the Rangers couldn't, you know, communicate with the trooper who was directly behind them. So it was pretty difficult to form a plan because that's one of the things you're wanting to do is like, okay, where are we going to execute this stop? And how are we going to do this? And how are we going to approach the vehicle? And so the officers did activate their, go ahead. This is, well, that's one of those things where you, if you don't have the radio frequencies, it's just like, there's no time to plan it. I mean, they're, these guys are just kind of going with, you know, the flow and what's, they're just kind of reacting. The, the law enforcement's just kind of reacting to what is going on in front of them because they don't have time right. to yeah, to form your plan. Make a plan. Exactly. Like, right. I don't know who's dis- if they had different dispatchers or what, but a ranger deployed spike strips. And after running over the spike strips, Lanham then just sped up like 60 to 65 miles an hour. So he loses control of the vehicle, crossed the center line, and struck a parked pickup truck on the other side of the road. And you, usually a stop like this is what we would consider or call a high risk stop. Felony stop is yep. what we a felony stop is what we would call it. Yeah. Yeah, we'd refer to it as that. And law enforcement trains for this kind of incident and and how in theory this would work is you would have, you know, certain placement of your vehicles, you would maintain cover, you would get on your PA and order the driver, for example. Driver. <laughs> Put your hands where I can see you. <laughs> Open the door with your hands up. (laughs) Turn around slowly. If you if you do not comply, you will be shot. Okay, so that's kind of how that's supposed to go. (laughs) However, (laughs) as soon as the van stopped, a trooper ran to the vehicle and approached the front of the vehicle. So he was kind of facing the rear. So he was really, you know, face to face with the bad guys, and so he saw. Montowski reached into the back seat of the vehicle and the rest of the officers observed Lanham holding a shotgun with the barrel of the firearm facing the troopers on the driver's side of the vehicle. And so Lanham had his finger on the trigger. Every, everybody's giving him orders, you know, numerous times, put the gun down, put the gun down and put your hands up. But he refused all commands. So one, he doesn't follow any of their orders. He doesn't follow any of their orders while they're all yelling at him. Exactly. To, to you know, drop the gun. Exactly. Yeah. And one trooper fired through the window of the driver's side of the vehicle and Lanham's shotgun discharged when he was hit. Lanham was ultimately struck several times and killed. I mean, you, you know, once somebody's shooting, this guy's got his shotgun pointing at them. He's going to receive a lot of bullets from a lot of officers. Yes. He, a lot of a lot of lead flying in that direction. Right. Well, Montowski, the female passenger, was also hit, and she was transported to a hospital in Fairfax, Virginia, for non-life-threatening wounds. And I'd say she's lucky. This whole incident in the park lasted about an hour and a half, and it's amazing that no one else was injured, and this ranger and the others kept their cool, got all the resources in place, and took care of the threat. And now to add to the crazy of this incident, the now deceased Lanham was in full Joker face paint. It appeared that he had painted his face while leading law enforcement on this chase. And I bet that's an image that stuck with those officers for a long time. Yeah, because when I saw a picture of him, 
painted up like that, yeah. that that'll stick with me for the rest yeah. of my life. Right. I, mean, I, don't, I wasn't even there. You know, that's not anything that they knew. Obviously, the ranger did not see his Joker face, and it could have been that hit their head coverings also covered his face in the pullout. Maybe that's why he didn't see it. But anyway, that was very startling and nothing that they were prepared for uh, once this gunfight started. So a number of items were found at the shooting scene, including a 12-gauge Mossberg Model 88 shotgun with no shoulder stock, several knives, a bloody straight-edge razor, and a loaded magazine for a 45 pistol. And face paint was in the car. Which is interesting because the 45 was also at the house. Yeah, that's and right. So obviously, you know, more than one magazine was with that weapon, yeah. but the, the one that was at the house was also loaded. Right. So the when when Montowski got taken to the hospital, um, FBI agents went to interview her, and she was at the uh, Innova Fairfax Hospitals is where she was taken to. Montowski initially she refused to provide her true identity to medical personnel, and was admitted to the hospital under the name Havana Havana. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if that, that was is kind of significant funny, but. to her, but you think she could have at least come up with two names that weren't exactly the same. <laughs> My name is Nancy Nancy. <laughs> I'm going to use that next time I have to go to the hospital. What's your name? Nancy Nancy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, upon speaking with law enforcement personnel, she admitted that her name was Patsy Montowski. So Montowski initially told agents that she and Lanham were just driving around the park looking at the scenery. Uh, well, she did. Just, well, there you go. Yeah. But uh, And then they had driven to find a place to watch the sunrise. So they want, wanted to see the sunrise. Because they were already out. So she said that Lanham, Lanham noticed the park ranger following them. And then shortly thereafter, they activated their emergency lights. She went on to say that the spike strips were thrown in front of the car and Lanham sped up and drove through them, which that part I don't understand, but obviously he didn't know what he was running over. When the vehicle stopped, Lanham had a shotgun out and was trying to shoot himself, according to Montowski. Mm. She then said that Lanham handed the shotgun to her and asked her to kill him. But she threw the shotgun down, and Lanham picked it up, and the shotgun was pointed at his stomach, according mm, to Montauk. Sure. Yeah, exactly. She then gave her version of what occurred during the police shooting. She also told the agents that Lanham had approximately 12 knives of different sizes and shapes for their protection. So oh. I don't know about you, Tara, but I carry 12 Knives are on all the time for my perspective. Right, right. Which is, <laughs> you know, causes me to jingle jangle when I walk, but <laughs> nobody's going to mess with us. That's right. So at first, she denied that Lanham had any guns other than the shotgun involved in the shooting. Well, later in the interview, when she was asked about the forty-five caliber pistol uh. that was found at the stabbing mm -hmm. scene, then she acknowledged that Lanham had a pistol. Oh, sure. I forgot and about she that. Last, mm -hmm. That's right. That, oh, slipped my mind. And she last saw it in Lanham's top drawer where he kept it. She claimed she did not see the pistol 
during a fight between Lanham and Stone, hmm. which occurred earlier in the morning. So Montowski told the agents that Sunday morning, she was in Lanham's room with Lanham at approximately 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. Hmm. So Lanham was preparing for war, as he often did. So in preparing for war, it consisted of cleaning all of his knives oh. and getting and getting ready. Like ready for what? What war? I'm not exactly. sure, but what war? Yeah, it, exactly. So she said that he has done this several times in the past. However, this time was different because he actually he it was actually dressed in clothes that were black pants and a green vest. Hmm. And it was the kind of sounds to me like it was his Joker costume mm. that he had purchased earlier that he had that on. Well, later in the morning, she went outside to retrieve some cigarettes from her vehicle. Well, when she returned, Lanham would not let her into the room. So she knocked on Stone's door and Stone allowed her to pass through his room to get to the common area. And then That's onto rude. Lanham's That's room. rude, waking somebody else up because you, your boyfriend will look. Won't let you in the room. But anyway. I, I know, right? So then Montowski told the agents that Lanham and Stone began to argue and when then started pushing each other. And this developed into a full-fledged fight. Mm. So during the fight, Montowski said she took the knife out of Lanham's hand and placed it on the countertop near the sink. This could be one of those clean oh, knives that we saw yeah, on the sink. Yeah. At one, at one point, Stone was on top of Lanham, and Montowski used her stun gun, used her stun gun on Stone and tried to push Stone off of Lanham. Montowski did not believe the stun gun was working. <laughs> oh, this thing doesn't work anyway. I'll just pull this trigger and see what happens. <laughs> Multiple times, yes. Yeah. She told agents she saw a lot of blood, and Lanham had some injuries, including cuts to his face, arms, and finger. She went on to say that the large amount of blood she observed did not come from Lanham's injuries. When the fight ended, Montowski observed Stone run in the opposite direction from which she and Lanham were running. Montowski did not describe any specific incident that would have caused the two of them to fight that morning. She told agents that she was driving the vehicle after the fight and Lanham painted his face at that time ah. to look like the Joker. Yes. Hmm. So he did it while she was driving. So that must have been prior to the park. Yeah. She, den she denied that his face was painted before the fight. So Montowski further stated that Lanham idolized the Joker and said everything the Joker did, he did for a reason, like killing people. Wow. For example. <laughs> well, I'm glad there's and then, a reason. Well, there you go. You got to have a reason That's for everything. Reason. And then he agreed. Then he agreed with the philosophy of doing things for a reason. She said that, she said that this past Halloween, Lanham bought a Joker costume and wore it. Lanham had also wore the face paint before, but this time was the most detailed. So he was going to kill somebody somewhere. 
Wow. So Montowski admitted to the agents that she transcribed the goodbye note for Lanham before the fight between Lanham and Stone. She admitted that she also wrote the note for her kids, but said she was not serious and did so only because Lanham did. So he knew that he might not be coming back that day, but I don't think we really knew the significance or the extreme of what he was going to try to do. Wow. So, yeah, Montowski said it was not a suicide note, but a goodbye note. Hmm. The letter for Lanham was written Sunday morning prior to the fight and was left on the seat of Lanham's car. The letter was written to his daughter, Andrea, and he used the words he could not explain his actions. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of... Just gets weird. Yeah, that is weird. So, yeah. So Montowski further admitted that the stun gun was hers, and that she had recently purchased it at a military surplus store, and that Lanham was with her when she purchased the gun. Finally, she admitted she carried the stun gun on her person, and that it was on her when she went to get the cigarettes from wonder, her car. Wonder how she carried. The incident. I wonder how she had room with all those knives she had hanging off of her. Belt first protection. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd she put it? I, I don't. Yeah, exactly. In between I'm all not those sure knives, she carried. Yeah, <laughs> where she carried the stun gun. But uh, yeah, so that was her interview and uh, wow. what she had told told the agents. So then on um, on March tenth, two thousand nine, the agents interviewed Stone. So Stone provided his account of what occurred with Lanham and Montowski. So Stone stated that Montowski knocked on his door in the morning of March 8th, 2009, while he was sleeping. Mm. Stone opened the door, and Montowski asked if she could access the common area so she could enter Lanham's room. So, you know, I'm sure Stone's like, whatever, you know, right. go ahead. So she accessed into through his room. And he noticed that Montowski seemed to be deliberately walking slowly from hmm. the outside door to the common area. Hmm. That's kind of weird, yeah. right? Montowski did not completely shut the door between his room and the common room, and he thought that was strange because the door was closed before she entered. Why wouldn't she close it after she went through? I'm going to assume that there are actual bedroom locks to at least keep your own privacy in your own bedroom. I bet it was locked. And so she essentially opened that door for Lanham and left it open and unlocked. That's right, because it does have a locking mechanism. So when you close the door, it does automatically lock. So Stone was thirsty, he told investigators. And he before he went back to bed, he went to get a drink of water. So Stone went through the common area door and saw Lanham and Montowski standing in the dark outside the door of his room. Wow. Yeah. They appeared surprised to see Stone. And he stated Lanham said multiple times, get him. Wow. Get him. I know. And this is, I'm sure is dark. I don't know if there's any lights on. So you're kind of hearing this. Lanham then attacked Stone, shocking him three times with the stun gun. Wait, who, who, who attacked? So Lanham, so Lanham, then attacked Stone, and he shocked him. Th- 
three times oh, with the stun gun. He took the, the stun gun from her and used it on Stone. Yes. Wow. And he shot Stone, he shot Stone once in the neck, mm. once in the shoulder, and once in the ribs. So Stone fell, but grabbed Lanham as he was going down and brought him to the ground with him. Mm. So during this time, Stone punched Lanham one time and knocked the stun gun from his hand. Uh. He got up, he got on top of Lanham, who was on the floor, and laid across him so he could so he couldn't get up. Yeah. And he continuously, Stone continuously told Lanham, stop and chill. Stop and chill out. Stone also told Montowski, tell him to stop. Lanham then told Montowski, tase him, oh. referring to Stone. He wanted, because he was on the bottom of the pile, he wanted Montowski to, right. to taser Stone. So Montowski straddled Stone and shocked him oh, wow. approximately four times oh in gosh. the arm and in the back. And I don't know about you, but I have been tased before. <laughs> and only once, and that's all it took right, for me. Right. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, not a pleasant training experience. I wonder how many volts so, does a regular stun gun have, or do you? We don't know that this was a taser, but a regular stun gun, how many volts of electricity yeah, does it give compared to a taser? Yeah, because we know what a taser has, right. but we don't know yeah. if a stun gun is just as strong. Yeah, fifty so thousand stone- volts. Don't make me put 50,000 volts. (laughs) So then Stone got up off of Lanham and fought off Montowski. So now he's fighting both of them. Wow. He hit Montowski and attempted to run back into his room through the common area. As he fled to his room, he felt something warm on his leg Mm. and noticed that blood was running down the back of his leg. Wow. Yeah. He turned and noticed... Lanham holding a knife. Stone kicked Lanham and ran to the exterior door of his room. Stone tried to open the door so he could flee outside. Before Stone was able to open the door, Lanham came from behind and cut his throat. Oh, wow. I know. Stone raised his hand to protect his throat and Lanham cut his hand. Mm. I mean, think of, think right. of the arteries and the veins, especially the carotid, right. that, you know, that's there. Yeah. Lanham then proceeded to cut his throat again. Stone elbowed Lanham, knocking him off and was able to exit the building and go down to the staff duty area wow. to ask for an ambulance. Wow. I just, man, that's a fight or flight right. deal right there. Exactly. I can't believe he had the, the strength, yeah, and the will to get out of there survive. and survive. Yeah. Stone did not see Montowski and Lanham after he exited and headed to the staff duty station area. He he stated that Lanham was wearing a Joker outfit, which appeared to be his Halloween outfit that he had worn previously. Crazy. So yeah, so Stone and Lanham were not wearing any face paint, is mm. what he told. Right. The investigators. Okay. okay. Wow. That is just, that is crazy. Well, I couldn't really find a lot of information on Lanham or Montowski. I was curious about him and his history. Um, and all I got really was just that Fort Eustis official said he had returned from Iraq in September of 2007. And he had been stationed at the base there since November. And before 
Both he and Stone were assigned to the post health clinic. And then with Montalski, all I could find out about her was she was from Virginia Beach, apparently. She was mm-hmm. arrested for her role in the attack on Stone, fortunately. But they actually had her evaluated for competency to determine if she was able to stand trial and understand her charges or assist her attorneys in her defense because they had thought initially she might be suicidal because of those letters she wrote saying goodbye to her kids. Uh, She was. So, yeah, so that that might not have been a joke because maybe she knew that day something could be final. What I would think they would have had to have talked about that too, especially if oh sure he in fact was saying we might not come back. But she was deemed competent and she pled guilty in November of 2009 to federal charges for being an accessory after the fact with intent to commit murder. She was sentenced in May of 2010 to 75 months in prison. And I think that's like six, okay. six and a quarter years or something of the Department of Justice likes to make you do math in their press releases. That's they always, they <laughs> just, always say they just say six and a half years. Sentences <laughs> are in months. <laughs> uh, but then followed by three years of supervised release. So clearly she's out by now. Yeah. Yeah, she is. And, you know, Army specialist Mitchell Stone suffered some critical injuries, and I couldn't find information to the extent of his injuries and if there were any permanent disabilities that he suffered because of the attack. But I do know that the Department of Defense has a robust victim assistance program, and they did have one there at Fort Eustis. So they have victim attorneys who will represent the victims, ensuring their legal rights are afforded, which I think is really cool, and every victim I think should be appointed a victim attorney. But another thing. That oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's great to have that someone there in their corner. I mean, they're just, they're the victim. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of victim assistance, victim specialists, victim advocates, but the military has attorneys who help ensure that they, um, their legal rights are, are afforded. But another thing I didn't see in any of the court documents was any restitution ordered by the judge for Montowski to pay for, you know, any out-of-pocket loss. Uh, and vi- Victims are entitled by law to timely restitution. But I'm just wondering maybe here there was no financial loss on his part, you know, if the military totally covered anything, which I'm guessing they, they probably did cover everything. So maybe that's why she wasn't ordered yeah, to pay restitution. I don't know. But, you know, I also have to wonder if these two – had something larger planned in with all this preparing for war statements and all the premeditation of the ammo and the guns and mm-hmm. looking up sleeping mm-hmm. gas in I was stone their only target, their first target. Did that just accidentally mm-hmm. happen? I don't know. Um, I didn't hear anything yeah, right. or see anything, you know, I, I didn't see anything in her plea agreement that she had to admit to anything like that. But I will say, thank goodness for that Ranger who was initially involved who was so observant mm-hmm. his spidey sense no came up, and he did not ignore that and this is another incident where some bad guys made a huge mistake by going into a national park just saying that's right baby that's exactly what they <laughs> exactly. did don't oh, be doing that that's right so let me tell you the joker gets around yeah i'm telling you people are for whatever reason they're fascinated yeah. or infatuated or whatever i don't understand joker. it I know. So here in Custer, South Dakota, I was talking to a law enforcement officer that I used to supervise on the Forest Service, and his name is Eric. Well, Eric got 
word that there was a guy that the 911 call came into the Custer Dispatch Center. And it was an elderly woman. And she was saying that her grandson was acting weird and has a samurai sword uh, and was swinging it around the house, around course. her house. Of course. <laughs> Those samurai swords come into play once again. And it scared her. And he, she called 911 and he left the house. Mm. And he was dressed in purple and green outfit. He had face paint on. And he couldn't find green paint for his hair. So he used some type of motor oil or something uh. that had a green that had a green tint to it. Wow. And then but it did make his hair have a green tint to it, but it was also really greasy, greasy. as you yeah. can imagine. Like a conditioner. So, conditioning at the same time. <laughs> there you go. So this guy is running around Custer with a samurai sword. And so Custer kind of goes on a, a soft lockdown, basically, as they notified people and they started looking for this guy. Now he's on foot. So he jumps on the trail, which is in the forest. And and Eric, who's an LEO for the Forest Service, he gets in on the search for this guy. So as him and he another deputy are going down this trail. For whatever reason, Eric catches something in the corner of his eye and he looks to the left and he sees someone run underneath a bridge into a culvert, like a, a big, you could stand up in culvert. Right. Oh my God. So gosh. he jumps out of his vehicle, runs down there and the deputy sees him and the deputy runs after him. So those two go running down this embankment and at gunpoint, they get this guy who's dressed like the Joker out of the culvert. So they get him handcuffed and they bring him up to the road. And as they're searching him, Tara, they are taking knives and box cutters. Oh my God. And exacto knives. And he dropped the sword. So that didn't come up the hill at that time. So yeah, all of these knives, I guess I just didn't realize that the Joker in the movies had so many knives. I didn't know. Um, I, I didn't know. Me either. I mi- I missed that part of the movie because I, I just wasn't. But with the, with the story that we just talked about and then this story, I mean, they've got a lot of sharp objects and a lot of knives on their person. So anyway, this gentleman was taken into custody and they ended up taking him to the hospital. Um, I'm not exactly sure why he went to the emergency room, but um, as it would be, I'm, I'm also an EMT. So lo and behold, I happened to be in the emergency room dropping off a patient. And I did look in um, the room, the curtain was pulled and I looked in the room and there was this guy sitting on the bed and he had painted his face oh to look gosh. like the Joker. And now the, the grease was kind of running down his face also. So his makeup wasn't probably as well done oh, as uh, as well. Lanham's, but you could definitely tell who he was trying to right, portray. Right. So then this gentleman was taken off the streets and, and captured and taken to uh, drop left with the proper authorities. And he was taken care of. Yeah. Amazing, amazing stories that we're talking about. Two of these stories, well, both involving the Joker. Well, I uh, I am not going to go see that Batman. 
because of this, but it I am it does kind of make me a little bit curious. But there, you know, there's there are other well known crimes inspired by the Joker, and probably the most famous one was that James Holmes, the Aurora, Colorado theater shooter, and yep. You know, he I remember, entered, I remember yeah, that. He entered a midnight showing and because of this guy, you know, everybody thinks of this when you go into a movie theater today, but he entered um a midnight showing of the Dark Knight Rises, dressed in tactical clothing and set off tear gas canisters and canisters and shot indiscriminately into the crowded theater, killed twelve people and injured seventy others. But here's what I didn't understand too. I read he had dyed his hair red and was referring to himself as the Joker. And that's when of course I had to go online and go look up images of the Joker. And like you said, he has green hair. I don't know the point of his orange hair. Yeah. And then I'm just gonna huh. say one other crazy thing. I've got a whole list of these and, and I'm just going to talk about one other one, but this this one was disturbing to me. In 2016, a 14-year-old girl in England cut her own mouth open to give herself a Joker-esque smile. Oh, what? Right. Mm-hmm, and proceeded to... Oh my God. Yeah. So she lures a friend to a secluded part of their school and where she then stabs her friend in the chest then, oh my gosh. Uh-huh. And after being arrested, the girl said she didn't care if people blamed it on the Joker or Columbine. They didn't inspire me, quote, she says, quoting her, they, <laughs> oh, they motivated me. So this is some sick stuff. These are some, wow. I've, got to, I've got to believe there's some kind of mental illness uh, attached to people who are who are doing this. And I don't know oh, about you, but no doubt. I can't, no doubt. I can't really think of a movie that would motivate me that much to do anything but i'm gonna say this because i thought i just thought of this a few minutes ago (laughs) since it's around christmas you know that we're recording this you know we just watched the movie elf have you seen elf um yes Yes. i have yeah okay well (laughs) talk about i try not to remember that i've seen elf well every time i watch it and he puts syrup on his spaghetti i kind of want to do that so (laughs) (laughs) but i haven't yet but that's about the extent of my motivation from a movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> anyway oh man this this was some dark stuff and i'm gonna change gears sure was and talk about something just a, a little different so there's this author okay. an author named cj box and hopefully many of you out there listening have heard about him or maybe read his books he writes fiction stories about a wyoming game and fish officer named joe pickett fighting crime in remote areas of wyoming and oh, Joe, yes. <laughs> he wrote a book called Free Fire. So stay with me. I have a reason for bringing this up. Uh, the summary for that story says, Joe Pickett's been hired to investigate one of the most cold-blooded mass killings in Wyoming history. Attorney Clay McCann admitted to slaughtering four campers in a backcountry corner of Yellowstone National Park, a free fire zone with no residents or jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. In this remote 50-square-mile mm-hmm. stretch, a man can literally get away with murder. That oh, area, yes. yeah. So that area is referred to as the zone of death. So look it up on Wikipedia. I'm not going to go into anything else about uh, the zone of death. But, okay, <laughs> here's a super fun fact. There's a female ranger character in the book named Judy Demings. 
And C- Judy Deming. And C.J. Box based that character on real-life ranger Nancy Martins. <laughs> <laughs> right here with us. So, so tell us yes, about your did. experience spending time with author C.J. Box. And there's hardly anybody that's going to say they had a character in a best-selling book named after them or based off of them. It was interesting because um, one of the special agent in charge, Brian Smith from Yellowstone had called me and said that CJ Box wanted to interview a ranger. And he asked if I would be interested in letting him do that. And I said, sure. I had no idea what it all entailed. So he came down to my house in Yellowstone. And I just remember sitting on the front steps with him. And he was, we probably visited for a little over an hour. And he just asked me, a lot of questions about what I do, uh, what my job entailed. Um, he asked me about my family. So if you notice in the book, Judy has two children <laughs> and is married. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. So anyway, he just, it was interesting. He just had a lot of uh, questions for me. And we just just sat and visited on the step. And again, I had really no idea what this all entailed mm-hmm. until the book came out. And then I started reading the book and I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, that is me that right. he had yeah, he, that he had in the book. Well, so it was, yeah, I actually read the book, you know, and I didn't even know that I, I had no knowledge of you being involved, you know, before this book came out. So I'm reading it and I'm like, there's no way that's not Nancy. And <laughs> he even described your house. Like he obviously went through your house. I don't know. And he did. Well, he came into the house, you know, we, we met at the door and then I brought him into the house and then it, you know, basically it was just such a nice sunny day that we just went out and sat on the steps. And so he got a feel for the neighborhood, you know, that, that I lived in and he did see the house in the backyard and stuff like that. And then, um, yeah, it was just, he just incorporated all that <laughs> into the book, which is, and I did, I had to call because my mom wanted to read the book and I had to call my mom and say, you know, okay, Judy, Judy gets shot in this book. Right. So, <laughs> please be prepared. She, she does not die. Please be prepared for that. That's that's a so, good point. Uh, rem- remember, it's it's fiction. <laughs> right. Well, so. back to the zone of death. It, you know, the the premise is that a crime committed in this area uh, cannot be uh, prosecuted because there's no um, nobody can have a jury of their peers if you commit a crime there. Correct. But um, but one last fun fact about that area is the district that this zone of death sits in is where my husband was a supervisory ranger for over twenty years. So it was actually in his. That's right. His it was in it was at Beckler yeah, Beckler Ranger area. It's back, <laughs> Beckler district. Yeah. So anyway, so if anybody. Uh, hasn't read Free Fire by CJ Box. Go read it and then now you, you know, you you have a connection here cuz you've heard Nancy. You should read it. Yeah. It is a good book. He did a great job yeah, on the book. All right. Well, lastly, uh if you ever need a pick me up or some good news, I also Speaking of another book. Yeah, another book. Yeah. Well, I want to give a shout out to Nancy's husband Dwayne Martins who is uh, a public figure. He's a motivational speaker and an author of a book titled Be Your Own Champion. Is that right? Becoming Your Own Champion. Oh, sorry. Becoming Your Own Champion. We have that book. So it's, so it's Becoming Your Own Champion, Achieving Your Dreams, 
wait, achieving, becoming your own champion, <laughs> achieving your dreams on your own terms. Be, be, <laughs> have you even read your husband's book? I have read my <laughs> husband's book, Becoming Your Own Champion, Achieving Your Dreams on Your Own Terms. Yes. And the other thing, he he posts a video every day. You can find him on YouTube or Facebook. I don't know wherever else. And sometimes they're funny and witty. Sometimes he has great financial advice. Sometimes they're motivating. Not mm-hmm. at all like mm-hmm. the Joker. You know, he doesn't motivate you to do things like the Joker. But anyway, if you need a good picking he- up check him out. He motivates you to he motivates you to do positive things with your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Positive mental attitude. But anyway, uh, go check out Dwayne Martins. All right. That's a wrap for today. I, uh, <laughs> I think we've covered enough. We've talked about a few things. So I'll say, <laughs> yep, everyone stay safe out there in wild places and watch out for the company you keep. Thanks, Tara. Good talking to you. Hey, guess what? We've got merch. So go to our website at crimeoffthegrid.com, scroll down to the merch button, hit that thing and find something fun for yourself or the true crime enthusiast in your life.